Welcome to Unfraid, a podcast dedicated to exploring how we develop presence in our work lives and beyond. Hey everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host Isra Khan and welcome to Unfraid episode one. Now I know it's been a little while since episode zero, Honestly, I was reflecting on where I was this time last year, and if someone told me that this is what 2020 was going to look like, I would look at them sideways and go, really? (laughs) How is that going to work? Um, How is that possible? Yet, um, here we are. And I imagine that the universe inside your hula hoops is also quite different, somewhat. And it's all the more reason to be having these conversations about presence, remaining unfraid in our modern culture of endurance. And it's probably feeling like endurance 2.0, double endurance, triple endurance for many of you. And I want to take a moment to just acknowledge that you're going through a lot and you're going through uncharted waters. I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. You may be feeling the effects of so many different changes in your own worlds. We've had lockdowns, quarantines, ambiguity, fear, frustration, working from home, working remote. Some of us have gone back. We are also in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests, and we are grappling with the realities faced by us following the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Dominique Remy Fells, Brianna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, honestly, the list can go on. And on top of all of that, we're in the middle of Pride Month, and we just celebrated some landmark Supreme Court decisions granting more legal protections for LGBTQ plus workers. That's a lot. Our discussion for this episode, though, is quite timely. Developing presence when we feel like we are the only ones at work or that we feel like we're one of the few or when we feel like we come to work but we can't bring our true selves because we're part of an underrepresented group. Joining me in this critical conversation is Latanya Wilkins. Latanya is an executive coach. She's a facilitator and a speaker. She's a honestly a trailblazer in diversity, equity, and inclusion discussions. She's based in Chicago. She's also authoring a book entitled Leading Below the Surface that will be released in spring of 2021. Now, Latanya and I had a spectacular conversation on remaining unfrayed through so many different angles and dimensions. I've divided this episode into two parts. Uh, Part one's discussion will really center around how we as individuals uh, can remain unfrayed when we are part of underrepresented groups. And then part two will delve into leadership, big picture, organizational dialogues on diversity, equity, inclusion, and to increase belonging at work. So without further ado, have a listen. So my first guest that I am so excited to um, welcome to Unfraid, the podcast, is uh, Latanya Wilkins. Um, I had the pleasure of um, sharing the stage with Latanya once, (laughs) but it was a a wonderful time. Gosh, when was it, Latanya? Like almost a year and a half ago? Yeah, Um, it was about a year ago or so. 
Yeah, uh, we were at the uh, Lesbians Who Tech, I think. Um, uh-huh. Lesbians Who Tech uh, presentation. And so Latanya gave this amazing talk. And I was like, man, like, you know, this this is this is someone I want to get to know better. And then I moved. <laughs> and then I, I left Chicago. <laughs> but um, so, so glad that Latanya and I have been able to keep in touch and um, you know, Tanya was one of the first people that I thought of when I was when I was thinking about about these this podcast and um, all of that. So she's graciously uh, accepted my invitation to join us, and we're going to be talking about really the concept of unfraid and remaining present in our modern culture of endurance as it relates to um, you know being being underrepresented in in the workplace and even the way in which in which we move in the world so we're gonna dive in there a little bit but first of all welcome Latanya thanks so much for joining us thank you Ezra. I'm really excited uh, to, to chat with you today I, I I remember us talking over a year ago and I, I knew we would partner on something so the day has finally come this this is wonderful so you know let's kind of like, Let's just get started. So, Latanya, give us give us sort of like an overview of um, how you move in the world. You know, what what drives you? Uh, what are some of the things that that you are working on uh, that that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I I love that you asked what drives me instead of asking for a conventional bio, which I get yeah. asked for quite a bit. So I inspire people and organizations to lead better, connect better, and thrive. And I do that through um, helping them gain meaningful awareness, and number two, helping them change. And and that's what really is inspiring me and keeping me going these days. Uh, this this podcast is being filmed or actually recorded in uh, June of 2020, and we just went. We're in the um, I, I want to say. Uh, peak of the Black Lives Matter movement protests. I won't say of the movement itself, but the, the protests uh, surrounding uh, George Floyd's murder. And so um, I, you know, it, I've had to really uh, step into my uh, my life mission more, which is to help organizations create that meaningful awareness and change, uh, because I've had to have some very difficult conversations and um, just help people with this, their their own discovery process on what racism is, what racism mm-hmm. looks like, um, you know, how people might be privileged. And um, I'm a coach, so I, I'm not someone that, that preaches at them, but I've kind of let them come to that, that, to, to that conclusion. So, so that's a lot of what I'm, I'm doing. Um, and Honestly, that keeps me inspired. I mean, this morning I did um, another DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, design thinking session, and it was very participative with an entire company. And And these are the kinds of things that we need, I, I think, to, to, sh- to help shift the paradigm within um, organizations, uh, especially um, when trying to figure out you know, and determine how Black Lives Matter and how this movement will impact organizations. And so... That's what I'm passionate about right now. I'm also writing a book called Leading Below the Surface. It's a culmination of all my work. And so I expect that to be out um, of spring next year. Um, I do a lot of research in this area. Um, and I, I speak a lot in this area. And I also just, I, like I said, I just want to, my, my big mission in life is just to make an impact. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 
One of the things that I remember so clearly, Latanya, um, I, I believe it was the talk that I was at um, where we met for the first time, is um, you told a very powerful story. And um, and at the end of the story, you asked everyone in the audience, and this was pre-COVID, so everyone was in a room, <laughs> and uh, you asked everyone to say after you, be the light, or I am the light. Or, or yep. something of that nature. Yeah. Can you can you can you tell us about what what that story is? And I'm, I'm specifically referring to the story regarding your um, your grandmother. Yes, and it's it's so um, yeah. I, I actually it warms my heart that you're bringing that story up. So um, I I did I lost my grandmother this this year, and and don't feel bad for asking. I'm just it, my grandma was an anchor in in the brightest light in my, in my life. And one of the things that uh, I I always associate with her, like I would say, her pinnacle moment that that I uh, the pinnacle story that I always recall is when my grandma told me about the time, and she told me about this numerous times. We know how grandmas are, <laughs> and at the time <laughs> that she was living in in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, um, and um, how my my mother didn't want to drink from a colored drinking fountain. And um, she she refused in front of a white man, and this was around the time of Emmett Till. So my grandma panicked, and um, she took my all my um, all of her children uh, to Topeka, Kansas, um, to get out of the South. Um, there were still some issues in Kansas, so then she moved to Des Moines, Iowa, and oh, wow. and she uh, for the next uh, 30 years or so she was a I mean, I, I still call it a lunch lady. <laughs> she worked in the cafeteria at, um, at junior high for, for some of her career and then a grade school for some of her career. And so um, a lot of kids, and in, in, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, a lot of kids from there know her. And uh, when she uh, transitioned, uh, people were reaching out to me and said, oh, my gosh, your grandma. She would always say, you know, I'm going to give you an extra cookie, but you better eat. And, um, <laughs> you know, she would, she would give – she would still give kids that extra cookie, um, or she would say, "Well, you say you don't have your lunch money, but you have money for a cookie," you know. And and so um, she was just she was just a beloved soul um, in in these schools. And and one of the things I when I talk about leaning below the surface, I mean, sometimes I show a, a picture of her and um, all the women that she worked with, and, and they were all you know white women. And this was you know obviously in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and really more 60s and 70s. And these women developed friends. And I mean, they've developed these these really deep, developed into friends and they developed these deep friendships. And uh, it's amazing. Like some of them uh, even came to her funeral and um, they were able to see past their differences. And she was always the light. And that's what I said when I was saying be the light is that my grandma had been through so much. I mean, she she had to you know flee out of the South and bring her kids to the North. Um, she was the only one at work for so long. Um, you know, there was so, I mean, she had to wait until, you know, President Obama, like basically um, the last 10 years of her life to see a black president. Um, you know, she lived dur during Jim Crow and, and, but she was always the light. And I never, I never knew, I mean, you know, towards the end, yeah, she, she exhibited some moments of sadness and, you know, vulnerability, but overall, I mean, she was rock solid and she was always a light. And she, it wasn't just that she was a strong woman. It was just that she was a bright woman and people wanted to be around her. 
And um, so that's what I always say, be the light. Uh, it, it comes from my grandma and the example that she said. What a gift to, to have a, a soul like that be, be part of and, and surround your life, Latanya. Thanks for sharing. Um, that's, that's, that's absolutely stunning um, to have uh, a human like that in, in one's life. You're very lucky. Um, and also lucky in the fact that, you know, you're kind of utilizing, um, you know, being the light in not only your work, but also how you work and, and tying it back to how you said that, that you want to make an impact. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, what specifically resonates with you about the idea uh, regarding, you know, building presence in our working lives, especially as it relates to um, kind of like being the only one at work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you have any examples or, or things that you could share with us that what, what specifically is behind uh, that for you and what resonates with you? Well, you know, I, I don't know if this will answer the question, but so I, I work with, um, so I, I do a few things. So I do coaching. So executive coaching. I also do, um, like I said, a lot of DEI work workshops and, and some consulting as well. Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my coaching practice. So, um, a lot of the coaching I do is, is with underrepresented groups. Um, I also do coaching with executives, um, to kind of help them manage people and, and, build better teams, especially people that are, are different from them. Um, if they have folks that, um, you know, that they, you know, if they have diverse teams, I help them lead, do those diverse teams better. Um, so as far as having presence, I mean, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, a lot of the women or men that I coach, um, especially at the C-suite level or within tech companies or, you know, industries where there's not a lot of people of color, especially, you know, black people, um, it's very, very difficult um, uh, to to rise in those environments and to thrive. And so, um, you know, with, with presence, it's uh, you know, when I when I when I'm coaching, it's it's like helping people find um, you know their superpower. And 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 if you are the only one, you know, what is your superpower? And you know, and not, and being unwavering about that superpower because you know what happens is. When you're the only one, you might get asked to do a lot of things, right? In in addition to your job, like you might be you might be the you might be asked to be the diversity department when you have know nothing about it, just because oh, you're a person yeah. of color. Or you might ask to you know you might ask to be you might be asked to be you know a PR you know stunt for um, a company, even though that's not your area at all. So so that's one of the things that um, you know I work with a lot of folks on is just really you know just being unwavering about their superpower um, and also, um, you know, stepping into their courage um, in these situations. But at, at the same time, just, uh, you know, stepping into that courage, but making sure it's aligned to your superpowers. I love that. Stepping into your courage and, and ensuring alignment with, with your superpower. You know, what you said just, just now just sparked two different things. Um, the one thing is, um, I was, I was smirking when you said, you know, oh yeah, let's, let's just grab the, the, the one person that might be quote unquote, the only one and give them a job. Um, like, Hey, would you like to be our chief diversity officer? Um, or would you like to be our diversity department? Think, things of that nature. Um, you know, that's on one side. And then what I'm also kind of picking up on is that on the complete other side, we may have so many 
diverse identities within ourselves as one individual. Mm-hmm. Um, some that are that are completely unseen, and people may not pick up on the fact that, you know, okay, Isra Khan is a woman of color, right? Also mm-hmm. identifies as queer, <laughs> you know, also an immigrant, also you know, raised Muslim. All of those things we don't really know uh, that on the surface. And um, a, a quick story is that today, I believe, is actually the um, the anniversary of the. Um, the Pulse Massacre. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember so vividly uh, that it it really, it it hit me. And I was living in Tampa Bay at the time, so not so far from Orlando. And the actual Pulse nightclub has a, has a special significance to me personally. And um, to not be asked, how are you doing? Um... And, and and it's like, what what do I do with that? You know, what where's where do I find space to move in that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just something to put to put out there is is two sides of that of that spectrum. You know, what what's seen and and propped up, and what's unseen and likely uh, ignored. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I love that you brought that up because I think it's um, you know. It's it's one of those things that it's a diversity that's unseen diversity, right? Um, it's 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 diversity that might not be visible, but it's it's also you know if it is visible, you know people have a really hard time um, empathizing or starting conversations about you know tragic tragedies or having conversations about trauma or suffering, and you know mm. I've seen that a lot this week where in last week where. You know, it was just hard for a lot of white people just to, you know, pick up the phone and say, I'm thinking about you. Right. And I mean, that just just getting those words out. And so um, I, I I love what you said about this, because, you know, it's the same. It's it's similar um, in a queer in, with queer people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. it, like you might not know they're queer. You don't know, you know, if you just don't. And if you do know they're queer, you're afraid mm-hmm. to say something, right? You're afraid to say, um, you know, how, how I'm just thinking about you. Don't ask, how are you doing? Cause that's, you're going to get asked about that a lot, but Hey, right. what does this day mean to you? Is, is there, or, Hey, I'm just thinking about you. Is there anything I could do for you? Or, Hey, is there something, you know, this is a pulse anniversary. Um, you know, should we do something, um, in our company or, you know, those are, I mean, it's, it's as easy as that. And it could just be, Hey, I'm thinking about you. I don't really know what to say or if it's something that is, is extremely important to you, but I, I do want you to know I'm thinking about you. And it's, it's just those little thing. And it's in with you and presence. It's um, I think it's hard for um, people to build presence, especially underrepresented folks to build presence when they're not feeling that psychological safety at work and people are coming to them and asking them, about how they're doing. And mm-hmm. um, even if it's clumsy, right, um, it, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. But at least, yeah. you know, something's better than nothing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that kind of leads me to my to my next question regarding um, a concept that seems to be pretty well known in, in I guess, our, our circles and our field of work. But um, I'd like for you, if you wouldn't mind, to kind of break down this, this concept of emotional tax. Um, and how it's and and how it sort of is is manifested most specifically as it relates to belonging and uh, underrepresented groups at work 
Yeah. So it's like, it's emotional tax is just what it sounds like. So you're paying a tax and the taxes in the currency of your emotions, right? Um, It's not in the currency of of dollars. Um, And so, or, you know, if pounds or whatever, whatever your currency is um, monetarily. Um, So in the, in organizations with, with the emotional tax, what the theory is saying is that uh, people of color pay an emotional tax at work, which means it's they're they're paying extra. Uh, they're paying they're they're giving away and they're having to spend. I guess the the better word they're having to spend more of their emotions at work, or expend more of their emotions at work. And what that does is that gets in the way of you know productivity. That gets in the way of belonging. That gets in the way of um, just you know day to day. Executions and that gets in the way of commitments. So, uh, commitment to the organization. Th- the study that Catalyst did on emotional tax estimated that uh, about 60% of people of color pay this emotional tax. And just an example of emotional tax would be, um, it, for example, you know, someone isn't out at work, right? And um, they're asked a question about, you know, what they did over the weekend, okay? Um, maybe they went to a pride parade, right? Maybe they, maybe their their partner, they went to their partner's uh, parents' house or something. But they're they're you know they're still not comfortable being out at work, and that's that's actually not out of the question because 50% of people, the stat was out was was put out um, by HRC that you know there's still 50% of people are, are, are closeted. So that emotional tax right. comes in the form of that person not suppressing themselves, suppressing parts of themselves, not bringing um, chipping away, chipping away, bringing fewer and fewer and fewer pieces of themselves to work. And so that's the tax that they're paying. And what this, the long-term uh, damage of this tax is that people end up leaving companies. Um, they end up um, you know, really not contributing how they could on teams. Um, you know, Talent leaders end up labeling them as ineffective. So there's all these misunderstandings that, that come that that are that come out of emotional tax, and so and again, sixty percent—that's a big number that pay um, emotional tax and people of color especially. That's that's a staggering amount. Um, sixty percent, so six out of ten ten folks mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. pay that pay that emotional tax. Um, this is something else that I want to bring up. A lot of the times, at least in my perspective, we have individuals that are part of an underrepresented group, but they, um, uh, how do I say, they probably write off, uh, they tend to write off their uniqueness and perhaps their diversity. And, and they spend so much time trying to get assimilated into the in-group Mm-hmm. That they essentially come across come across as I really don't care about you know what makes me diverse. Um, whatever I do is going to be um, in line with the majority, and um, whatever I decide to do at home is my business, and I don't want to bring my full self at work. Mm-hmm. How do we unpack that? One of the things I heard uh, the other day uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, I know I keep going back here because it's front mm-hmm. and center of my life right now, is like everybody can't be on the front lines. Everybody doesn't have to be on the front lines, right? And mm-hmm. what um, th- what that quote meant is that everybody isn't meant to be out protesting. And just because you're 
not out protesting doesn't mean you don't care. And so, um, you know, it, it's the same thing with, you know, it, it's similar to people that don't want to come out at work. Um, you know, there, there's probably reasons that they don't want to come out. And, um, you know, and I have to respect those reasons. I can't judge. I mean, we, we have no idea. I mean, they could be Muslim and their, their family finds out, you know, there could be terrible repercussions, right? There could be a lot of things there. Unpacking that, it's, uh, you know, I, there were, when I was with a, a large pharmaceutical company, we had a LGBTQ group. And I would say that 75% of the people in that group weren't out, which, but we had the, the resource group. And, um, and that was okay. And I mean, it was, we were able to talk about it uh, together as a group even though their teams didn't know. And so I, I guess what I would say to unpack it, it's, you know, if they reveal um, something to you about the, the, their identity and like maybe something where your identities overlap, maybe you have that conversation and maybe there's, there's, a, there's a reason why they're not able to be as open as you are, but there's a way that they can, you know, contribute in other ways, uh, especially to the inclusive culture. Yeah. And that, that, you know, what you say is very interesting is um, I like how you tied it back to the, you know, not everyone has to be on the front lines, um, especially for the, for the black lives movement that is front and center for us um, today. And it's also related to um, something that I said previously in a previous episode about choices, right? Um, If we feel like we have a choice in terms of how we want to move and what decisions we want to make, that can end up mitigating a lot of the factors related to feeling frayed at the edges or feeling unraveled. You know, what happens when when we are just um, robbed of choices is that we feel like we can't move. There's no room. Mm-hmm. And that really contributes to a sense of, of um, burnout, lack of control, and not being able to thrive and connect with others. Um, so I think that that concept of choices is also remains, remains relevant in this conversation. Yeah, it, it does. And that's an excellent point. And we're not a monolith, like queer people are not a monolith. Everybody's different, right? There's diversity within that community. You know, black people are not either. Um, you know, people of color are not monolithic. So yeah, it, it's like, it, it's like, we, just because you think, you want to do something doesn't mean that that is important to someone else doesn't mean that's one of their values and that doesn't make them less queer or black or whatever right right it's just and and so um everybody has their own struggle and we don't know what it is and Mm -hmm. and so like i said i think it's um with the group that i was in the um employee resource group at the pharmaceutical company you know we were able i think through that group people were more able um, to come out or felt stronger because they had that, that crew and that tribe. But, um, you know, I, I think th- those are the kinds of things you have to consider instead of just immediate judgment that someone doesn't care. So you mentioned the word tribe. Um, mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about finding your tribe. Cause that, that's, that's a keystone in, um, in one of your talks that, that I, yeah. um, that I was able to, to hear you at, um, so talk talk to us a little bit about finding your tribe and how does one do that? It is so hard. Um, you know, I I think that sometimes you go through um, you know phases in renewals with tribes, and what I mean by phases is that you might be in an entrepreneurial phase, and then that's going to bring in a different tribe, 
Um, and, but you, or then you might renew something in your life. So that's going to bring in a different tribe. Mm-hmm. But um, I will just be honest that um, I, until I was able to bring my whole self to, to my life, <laughs> uh, not just to work, but to my life, um, I, I was struggling with finding my tribe. And I didn't really know what that looked like. And, you know, I would, I would try to look in the groups that, again, were the groups that were supposed to be for me, but that wasn't where I, I found the tribe. And so how did I find my tribe? And that's a good question. Well, um, I, when I started speaking, I joined some uh, speaking communities, and one was Disrupt HR um, in Chicago. And that kind of got me. That's yeah, that's group. a great group. That's a great group. I kind of got um, involved in that group. I, I got to know some folks. Um, and then um, from there, it just kind of, you know, I started going to, um, I started speaking a lot. I started speaking and going to a lot more conferences that um, were, you know, kind of unconventional for me. Like, you know, I started going, I went to, you know, Lesbians Attack. I kind of went, I start. I started getting involved in that community. Um, I, I, in the coach community. So I, I ended up, you know, when I was doing my um, coaching credential process, certification process, I ended up going through, um, you know, picking up some of my tribe through that. Um, and it, you know, it was just a gradual process. And, you know, over time, I even picked up a lot of folks in my tribe on Instagram of all places. I mean, I was yeah. never that brought into social media. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I tell people, hey, follow me on Instagram. And then people will say, well, you know, do you do you actually get business on Instagram? I don't know if I should join Instagram. You know, I, I haven't seen it. It's really hard to monetize on Instagram. Some people have it figured out, some don't, some get clients. Yeah. And, you know, I've gotten a few, but the bigger piece of Instagram that is indirect, um, you know, branding and, and what's it, actually it's direct branding, indirect income or revenue, I would say, is just expanding your network. Like I've met people from all over the world on Instagram and um, those people, um, you know, are, you know, my biggest fans, cheerleaders. I'm their biggest fans, cheerleaders. Um, they've gotten me, especially in Chicago, um, I've gotten into uh, some groups and communities that I never would have even ever imagine getting into um, through cool. some of the uh, some of the other conventional ways. So, so the point here is don't. There's there's not one way to do it. Um, it's really, and I I know this is a cliche, and I hate when people say this. I, I mean, I used to hate when people say this. Is that your tribe will come to you, you know? And um, the real people, because I mean, there's people that really want to be part of your tribe and that really support you. And then there's the people that just want things for themselves. Like they just want to see what they can get from you. Right. Right. And it's really, I think the latter is easy to find, but um, the former is harder. And, and, but those people will come in if you open yourself up to it. That that's a fantastic, um, a, a fantastic way to kind of describe finding your tribe, right. Is, is to, throw spaghetti in the wall and see what sticks essentially um instagram of all places that's so cool um and and really kind of um you know what i what i heard you say is to be curious um and 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 adopt a level of curiosity there as opposed to gotta find my tribe i gotta find my tribe right it's my new year's resolution gotta find my tribe and like you said like it, it is it can come across as cliche but you know, there, there are these, these things that kind of tend to surround your shoulders, 
um, depending on where you are at in your journey um, and and in the world. So I completely agree. So when it when it comes to tribes, um, we've talked about how to find it. We've kind of talked about what it what it might look like to different folks, and you've kind of walked us through your journey uh, so far with it. But um, I'd like to hear more about why it's important in this conversation right now, especially for um, for the topic of belonging and presence. What what does the science say about it? Yeah, yeah. So um, as you know, I, I love the science around all of this, this stuff and the yeah. science behind belonging. And and so um, neuroscience, when you're looking at uh, neuroscience chemicals, that chemical is oxytocin, and that's called the love hormone. And it's uh, it has a really uh, big impact on relaxation, trust, psychological stability, um, and any any type of generous social interaction will will activate that. Um, oxytocin feels really good, right, when it's released. Um, and, and actually, you're, you're more open for trusting with that. And so um, with oxytocin, one of the ways that, um, so when you're building your tribe, you know, you're, you're building that oxytocin. And, um, and the more and more that you, that you get into your tribe and the more that you expand it, and the more that that tribe feels like where you're starting to uh, trust them, you're gonna you're gonna naturally, um, you know, practice some generous social interactions. Like for example, you're gonna start referring people. You're gonna start connecting people to other folks. You're gonna start, um, you know, doing favors for people. You know, you're gonna even start sending out thank you cards. And so that's gonna make you uh, feel very good. And so um, that's what that's the science behind this. And humans really need oxytocin because if you don't have it, you're not going to be relaxed and you're not going to trust and um, you're not really going to be that stable. And so um, to generate this, if you haven't found your tribe yet, um, one way to generate oxytocin is again, generous social interaction. So that, you know, you could even be something like sharing a social media post, right? Sharing someone else's post or, um, Again, sending a thank you card or, you know, I did a panel the other day uh, and the host, he sent me a $50 um, Amazon gift card. Like he didn't have to do that. But again, right. that's that's <laughs> helping him too because that's generating that oxytocin and that's sure. uh, building that relationship and that trust. Mm. No, that's great. Um, you know, I actually, very interestingly, I see a parallel here. I um, I worked on a, um, a building resilience uh, workshop at, at my organization. And one of the things that, that we, um, that we ask the, the group is, do you have a friend at work? You know, do, mm. do you have a friend at work? Yeah. It's not necessarily, you know, it's not, and we really, we really kind of break down, like, does this friend at work, is this relationship similar or different than your personal friendships? And, um, you know, more often than not, the, the participants would say, no, it's, it's different. Um, a, because, you know, it's it just people just need to get you, you know, to feel gotten. And, you know, when it when it comes to having a friend at work, I, I see that very similarly as we're talking about tribes. It's really about that connectivity and that connection between another human. And for us, you know, for, for myself, it may be, you know, I have a human moment um, and I and someone who's part of my tribe um, is connecting with me in a way that you know, is not, um, how do I say that? It, it's not conventional. Like I'm not connecting with someone just because they're queer 
I'm connecting with them on so many different wavelengths because that oxytocin is is moving in in my in my brain. Um, mm. I have a really cool connection with um, some coworkers where we could not be more different. But it's like, wow, you're you're a cool human. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're we're thinking on very similar wavelengths, and that that's part of the um, the connectivity that that mitigates some of this some of this feeling of not belonging sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having a friend that you could trust at work is vital, right? Um, and there's been research on this where, you know, you're going to get, people are going to be more productive, more longevity, but it, the big thing is someone that you can trust, right? And um, and if you, it, it's hard. And sometimes it's hard to find that inside and, you know, you find it outside, but um, right. but definitely what you're saying is is exactly is exactly right. All right, that marks the end of part one. Head on over to part two and enjoy. <laughs>